build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hello, welcome. Culture Matters Podcast number 86. Today we have Dr. Neil Agarwal. Neil Christian Agarwal is a cultural psychiatrist. He is an assistant professor at Columbia University, member of the university's Committee on Global Thought and fellow with the Truman National Security Project. His research focuses on conceptions of culture and psychology in clinical and forensic mental health settings. That's a mouthful. Um, but we don't only talk about this, we also talk about the Taliban and how that is with anger, violence and cultural differences. And then we move to ISIS as well. Some controversial subjects possibly maybe, but very much worth listening to. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening as well. We don't know yet. Neil, how are you? Well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good as well. Um, dressed in shorts and t-shirts, but you can only see that if you uh, watch the video cast. Actually, the t-shirt is the only thing you can see. Uh, if you want to <laughs> have a look at the video that we're recording, go to culturematters.com slash YouTube and you'll find all the list of the videos. Neil, I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, I bumped across, I bumped into you uh, on, on an audio version, if you want, on the spin-off of Freakonomics, which is called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Excellent podcast. Love listening to that show. And um, I love the way that's being produced as well. So I heard you being there, talking there, and the subject triggered me like I got to get this this guy on the show as well. Although it might be um, a bit of a sensitive topic, I guess, or potentially, but let's um, let's not uh, shy away from from that. Um, but before we go into the depth of uh, of what you are all about, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from? Where are you currently at this moment? And what would you consider your cultural frame of reference? Now, ten questions. I'll give you ten minutes or something. <laughs> go ahead. So I am currently an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. I'm also a member of the university's Committee on Global Thought. And I am a fellow with a group in Washington, D.C. known as the Truman National Security Project. Uh -huh. So that is currently my list of affiliations. I also have a private practice where I see patients either an individual or in family or couple settings. So I use principles of cultural psychiatry and psychiatric anthropology, not just in my writing academically, but very much in my day-to-day -day practice. Mm -hmm. And I came from a small town in Weirton, West Virginia, okay. and worked my way up eventually to New York City geographically. And my ethnic origin is, uh, of, uh, is from India. India. Okay. Which part of India, out of curiosity? So it is now, after the partition of India and Pakistan, no, Punjab and Rajasthan okay. uh, in okay. India. Okay, that part. Excellent. All right. Um, and you are currently in New York or you're in West Virginia? I'm currently in New York City. New York City. Okay. And you're in the Big Apple. And is the weather cool there? Is it summer there as well? 
It is, though it's a little bit more temperamental than we would wish it would be. Sometimes <laughs> rain, but sometimes too humid, but it's great weather right now. Yeah, I think the climate is changing, although some people tend to disagree. All right, <laughs> so you, you mentioned um, that you're a cultural psychiatrist. Now, I would Correct. call myself a cultural psychologist since I, I studied psychology and I, I, I talk and deal with culture and cultural differences. What does a cultural psych psychiatrist do and how would that differ from, from a psychologist? So those are very good questions. Traditionally, in cultural psychiatry, uh, we have three abiding research agenda, mm -hmm. uh, which are, number one, to what extent do mental disorders uh, resemble each other or differ across uh, cultures? Mm -hmm. uh, number two, to what extent in multicultural societies can services be provided uh, for ethnic or racial or religious minorities? And then number three, would it, what would be the cultural analysis or the anthropology, if you will, of psychiatric knowledge and practice? Mm -hmm. So how do we take psychiatry itself and think of that as a culture using the tools of anthropology at our disposal? The tradition of cultural psychiatry that I belong to really is at the influence of interpretive medical anthropology and psychiatry. Uh, it's a long-standing academic conversation that started in the 1970s and continues now through several institutions and journals professionally. Uh -huh. So that's briefly what I do and how I see myself. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're a true academic, really? I guess I spend about half of my time or maybe three quarters of my time in academics and then the rest of my time in practice. Okay. But yes, I think in terms of my professional identity, that my engagement with cultural psychiatry really has been informed through the academic enterprise. Okay. Now, from a, from a cultural standpoint, um, this is because I studied psychology a hundred years ago, and uh, most of the book, ninety percent of the books, were in English and were originating from the United States. So, isn't that already a cultural bias, a cultural influence, with how you and I and people like in our realm or Pretty much any part of academia are being educated in in terms of more anglo-saxon approach it's a very good point i wouldn't say bias because that to me is a little bit stronger than what i would intend but i do think that there's a very clear cultural perspective that you're totally right about which is that the way that people construct ideas about themselves and others mm -hmm. the way that people think about what they're doing when they walk into a psychologist or a psychiatrist's office, for the most part in psychiatry and psychology, uh, really has been governed by principles around notions of self and others mm -hmm. that come from Euro-American context. Yeah. So I agree that most of what we have studied ends up coming from a rather unique cultural perspective. Is, is, is there, can you take yourself out of that equation when you're doing your research then? Because, I mean, you have an Indian background or a, a, a South Asian background, and then your American influence as well, and maybe other influences. Can you take yourself out of, out of that equation when you're doing your research? I do it more whenever I'm in my practice. Because, uh -huh. <laughs> because in research, I mean, one can think about uh, academic scientific research as a series of publications that are in conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit harder to do it in that capacity, but in my clinical practice when I'm sitting with patients, I frequently see that depending on who I'm sitting with, yeah. I do have to adjust the way I'm speaking or the way I'm behaving. Uh, and so and that how, how, how do you can, you, can you give an example of how you adjust them? Yeah, so for example, in psychiatry and 
particularly in, I imagine, what would be more psychodynamic approaches or psychoanalytic approaches to psychology, mm -hmm. the whole issue of non-disclosure and not revealing oneself can be very orthodox. And with some patients, for example, of South Asian descent, mm -hmm. the, they would want to know a bit more about me and where I am, um, okay. kind of socially, how I got to where I did uh, whenever they come to see me. Not necessarily because they're interested in, say, stalking me or, yeah, or, or, or you, yeah, yeah. To over divulge and overshare in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. But if they ask questions about who I am and where I've come from, that I've found that it's easier when we're first starting a relationship uh, to answer them and, and to explore mm -hmm. why they're asking those questions later on, yeah. rather than to take a much more rigid orthodox approach from psychoanalytic or psychodynamic psychiatry to say, yeah. well, Tell me why that's important to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shoot from the hip <laughs> like that. Yeah. Is that is that and then a division that you could call along the lines of a cultural dimension called individualism? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that's kind of along the if, if you're thinking about that dimension, it might be something around individualism at one part of the spectrum and then collectivism maybe at the exactly. other. Yeah. And and then which which is a nice segue into something that you mentioned earlier. Um, the uh, you mentioned mental disorder differ among cultures, right? Or that's part of the, right. part of the research, at least one of the research pillars. Uh, should I think then of of um, continent differences? Like North America is different from South America, um, and Asia is different from Europe and stuff like that. Or can you actually do that in in country? line borders as well typically um in more established cultures like european cultures if that makes any sense and not so much african cultures because the african borders have been drawn up in what is in 1884 by well the the occupiers so is that does that make any sense yeah so i i'm going to give you a very unsatisfying answer okay. which is first i wouldn't base it around continent or country mm -hmm. because Oftentimes, we see cultural groups that are different across those kinds of borders um, or that straddle those borders. So I think maybe what we could do is take a step back and first come up with a working definition of culture okay. that would provide us with a common foundation to talk about this. So I typically think of culture based on the kind of work that I do and the reading that I do in my areas as a dynamic process by which values, orientations, practices, beliefs are transmitted among people intergenerationally yeah. and that uh, are, are, and so I think that's, and that are not necessarily um, exclusive to other people, but can be clearly delineated. So right. that calls us to think about several things, right? So first there's this process of it needing to be transmitted. So that then forces us to recognize, well, what might be idiosyncratic to an individual mm -hmm. and what might be more representative of a broader social group. Yeah. Uh, the second is that we're not just looking at values or orientations which might, be, which might be more cognitive. We're also looking at practices, which are observable behaviors. And then I think the third thing that's also important to recognize is that we are thinking about this in a very dynamic way where you may have noticed I didn't say anything at all about race, ethnicity, yeah. uh -huh. religion, or language. Yeah. I would consider those, I think like many people in my tradition, uh, to be important, but not necessarily essential because people yeah. may be born with 
or an ethnicity or a race or a set of languages that they speak, but may not necessarily identify with them. Yeah, most in, terms of, in terms of their norms and values. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's how I think of culture. So if you're thinking about it in that way, one of the biggest intellectual conundrums in psychiatry itself, and then more specifically within cultural psychiatry, is that since we don't have any kind of laboratory test or radiological imaging that we would be able to obtain in order to come up with a diagnosis, Uh meaning we get those tests if necessary to rule out diagnoses, but not necessarily to rule them in, that our work really is mediated through language. So we talk to people, we try to talk to people in depth and understand what their worldview is, how they live, and what's going on with them right now. And so over time, as we've done epidemiological studies in psychiatry, we've noticed that certain kinds of disorders seem to appear in certain contexts, but not in others. So for example, eating disorders are relatively common in Euro-American contexts and not necessarily the case elsewhere. And so that has people questioning why that would occur. Is it because there is a relationship to food and to body image that seems to occur in industrialized societies, maybe where there is a certain degree of bounty among a particular class of people? Mm-hmm. And that luxury may not be extended, say, in sub-Saharan Africa or parts of Asia where food is not seen as a luxury yeah. in that way. So that's what I mean by the different degrees to which certain kinds of disorders might be similar or different across cultural groups. Okay. Is there any particular thing that you see developing worldwide? Any anything any any like mental disorder that you talked about that is is growing worldwide? Like like ob- obesity. I mean, the whole world is getting more obese. Uh, with some countries going faster than others. How is that in your line of business? So it's interesting. I I can only speak anecdotally since I haven't done any kind of epidemiological study worldwide with various groups in different places. Mm-hmm. But we do seem to think that anxiety and depression are relatively conserved across cultures, that that people do, do feel down, mm-hmm. the way they express it might differ, but that it seems to have a relatively coherent set of symptoms that if we're shooting widely and mm-hmm. uh, trying to determine that that would be cross-culturally valid, even though the manifestations may differ. Mm-hmm. And same thing with anxiety, that people do genuinely seem to be preoccupied with what we would consider excessive anticipation, and that even though the specific um, somatic manifestations may differ, Mm -hmm. that people can talk about that in an articulate way. Okay. Is it is it useful to look at different countries? Like, um, if I, in my own case, being a Dutchman living in Belgium, is that useful to look at, at at issues like that in terms of mental disorder? How one country differs from the other, or is that does that not add anything? That's a good question. I think it depends on the kind of explanatory value one wants to assign in looking at a country. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're in Belgium and I'm in the United States, and we can talk about a certain tradition of formalized mental health services uh, with a series of shared expectations about Mm -hmm. people being able to recognize that they're maybe going through some distress, that there's a health system in place for them to be able to approach, Mm -hmm. that there are clear modalities of treatment that they can access, Mm -hmm. then maybe it can be helpful. But I find in my line of work, particularly when I'm sitting with people, that making no assumption is always the best way to proceed. (laughs) Because I don't I've been certainly earlier on when I was in my training or now whenever I supervise residents or fellows that so much can be lost with mistaken assumptions that we assume shared that it's better to get people to talk about 
anything that we think might be relevant so that we, there's a shared common foundation. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. You did that in the in the introduction as well before actually I hit record. <laughs> I asked you, do you, what do you know about me? And then you said I'd rather not assume. So I, I did. I gave a bit of an explanation. So you 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 do you put the money where the mouth is really. Um, I've seen in your in your LinkedIn profile that as a clinical research fellow. So that was some time back, I guess. Uh, yes. You've conducted research in cultural competence among health professionals and taught res resident trainees as well. Right. Why is that important, and uh, what can what can people what can health professionals uh, um, benefit from that? How what can they learn from that? Yeah. So that's an area of interest of mine currently as well. And so we think typically. Uh, so there are several things that I would respond to uh, with that. The first is that in the United States, just like I imagine Belgium um, or certainly other European societies, that we see a, a wide diversification of society now. With more and more immigration. Uh, more and more opening of borders leads to a more complex uh, layering of society where it's important for health professionals not to make any assumptions about the kinds of uh, the kinds of disorders that people may or may not want to talk about or the kinds of problems that they may or may not want to talk about. And so providing health professionals with a series of tools to start to ascertain what be what would be most at stake for a patient walking into uh, to their clinic, of any kind of background, I think is really important because there's so much stigma attached yeah. to uh, mental illness that helping health professionals broaden their vocabulary and become more comfortable with it is really critical. Is it is it the stigma that that um, which is which is stuck to mental disorders as well as the stereotypes that we have that we hold of of, of people of different ethnic backgrounds or different countries, etc. Is that combination that makes it makes it more difficult? Yes, I think you've hit your head really kind of on the mark here, which is that the, we can often also, what we would consider um, in psychiatry or in psychology called counter-transference, which is the conception that we have of other people based on our prior experiences with people we perceive to be similar, mm -hmm. that we can often project that onto our patients uh, whenever they're walking into our offices. And so first, understanding what we're doing and what we bring into the clinical encounter is really important. And then seeing what other people are bringing in as well. Um, and then in cultural psychiatry, one of the most interesting, I think, things to think about often is, uh, and this is a real intellectual dilemma that we have that I think is really just rich and fun to think through, which is that any, whenever anybody's doing cross-cultural work and we're not able to fully immerse ourselves, say maybe as anthropologists who are doing participant observation for a prolonged period of time in society, what are, how do we distinguish normal versus abnormal? And That's the dangerous word norm. Right. And I don't mean in a moral sense, I mean in a statistical sense, okay. right? Where, so for example, if there are a range of human experiences that might potentially be mapped out, like say sadness uh -huh. or, um, or, or uncertainty, at what point does the intensity of sadness start to become clinical depression? And that's what I mean by statistical normal in that sense, where within a particular society, there Maybe a cutoff point where we would agree that if somebody is experiencing sadness beyond what, say, a statistical norm could be, mm -hmm. that that person may then not be experiencing the realm of typical human experience and could benefit from seeing someone in a more professional context. Yeah. So, noting, like, in a sense, noting what's normal versus abnormal in a statistical way and in a culturally syntonic way. Mm -hmm is one of the things that we often teach as well. 
Do you see the the, the importance, uh, the re- not the relevance, because I, I think the relevance is there. Do you see the that that people are um, considering culture and in your in your realm, but also in mine, as being becoming more and more important, or do we have more of a, of a, a time frame going on? We're getting we're getting more introvert and introvert and introvert. It's very interesting. I think that at least in the United States, we've been trying to help promote a conversation with major funders like the National Institute of Mental Health to consider culture more actively. Mm -hmm. So, for example, over the past few years, the National Institute of Mental Health has increasingly, I think to the tune of now over 90%, Mm -hmm. earmarked its funding for neuroscience work, Mm -hmm. which, don't get me wrong, I think it's great to understand what the causes of mental illnesses are. Mm -hmm. But that kind of work that is done in basic laboratories often takes anywhere between 15 and 20 years to spin off for actual application with patients. Uh And those who do services-based work, which is how do we improve cultural um, competency of health professionals. Sensitivity awareness, yes. Right. How do we we customize services for various people? How do we make sure that the scientific discoveries that scientists really are at the forefront of trying to uh, trying to push our field in how do they actually find application to the day-to-day lives of patients so we would consider that to be a services uh, paradigm in the united states and that that funding has become decreased and so ironically among funders uh, at least major government funders Mm -hmm. culture seems to be more and more sidelined and yet if we look at advocacy groups like the national uh, Alliance for Mental Illness in the United States or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in the United States, that they've been talking about culture very actively. Mm. So it seems like what patients want and what many practicing clinicians want may be different than the way that scientists conceive of, um, yeah. uh, of what mental uh, what's important in mental illness. Yeah, it's interesting. Is the, do you think that is a, uh, a cause because of the uh, well, late political shift in the U.S.? You know, I I, too simple. So, when you say political shift, what are you particularly referring to? Uh, I'm 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 talking about the Donald. What (laughs) I'm about the Republicans and Donald Trump winning the presidency in um, in 2017. So there are concerns associated with Donald Trump's um, administration right now, such as the fact that his administration has advocated for a 20% decrease across all funding for the Mm -hmm. National Institute of Health which does trouble me as somebody who has been funded by them. But the actual shift in specific allocation uh-huh. for more basic neuroscience-led research occurred during President Obama's administration, okay. this brain initiative. Okay. And again, don't get me wrong, if there are ways that we can have scientific discoveries in psychiatry uh, that are clinically applicable, I'm all for it. I just often see, when I talk to my patients or when I have done research at Columbia, that we need services now. And so we can't wait for 10, 15, or 20 years before those scientific discoveries get translated for clinical application. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm all with you, all, all the way. All right. Um, I'm very nice conversation. I like the, uh, the topics. Um, I'm very, uh, very happy that you're here again. Um, you, you're also, you're also a, an author of several books, and this, this is right. the subject that you brought to the table at the, uh, the Free Economics Tell Me Something I Don't Know podcast. Um, you're the author of several books, and uh, on typically what's going, what's currently going on in the Middle East. Why did you pick that region to write these these two books? We'll talk about these books. I'd like to talk about these books in a moment. We'll sure. But why the Middle East? I actually am less focused on the Middle East uh-huh. per se um, as a primary motivation. Uh-huh. I'm more interested as a cultural psychiatrist in the 
justifications that people give for violence. Um, If we think about violence or anger as a typical emotion that many humans experience, whether it's getting frustrated with their children or whether it's they're driving on the the road and experience Uh road rage, that we can think of violence as a manifestation of anger. Um, And what intrigues me as a cultural psychiatrist is that when we think about the war on terror, that on various parties or on various sides, whether it's the United States government, whether it's the Taliban or whether it's the Islamic State, that various groups of people have provided justifications for violence and that I think those merit interrogation because at least in the United States, we've had a trade-off between civil liberties uh, in the name of national security protections after the horrific 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. Um, At least with the Taliban and the Islamic State, their conceptions of violence are also rooted in very deep cultural considerations about what they see at the place of Islam within society and the place of the individual within society. And and I don't definitely don't share those. Many people I know don't share those. Many people who are Muslim don't share those. Absolutely. And it still are compelling where we see in Afghanistan that a war has now lasted over 16 years. Yeah. Or with Iraq, um, the U.S. intervention in 2003 has continued to create problems in Iraq. And now it's expanded into Syria yeah. ever since um, 2014. So how people think about violence is, in general... A topic in cultural psychiatry, and I thought that cultural psychiatrists and cultural psychologists are not doing enough thinking, reading, writing, advocacy as it relates to the war on terror. And so that was really the motivation for other books. Okay. The fact that unfortunately those interventions are occurring in the Middle East is why they seem to have been focused more on the Middle East at the moment. Okay. All right. Okay. Good point. Um, the, the two books are called Mental Health in uh, the War on Terror, Culture, Science, and Statecraft. That was uh, 2015 when that was published. And the, right. tal- the Taliban's Virtual Emirate, The Culture and Psychology of a online of an Online Militant Community, which was published last year in 2016. Um, right. Can you tell us a little bit about these, these books? How are they different? And what does this online thing have to do with it? Yeah, so Mental Health and the War on Terror really looks at how psychiatrists and psychologists have been interacting with the government Mm -hmm. ever since the War on Terror was announced. And so my predominant focus there was to try to see how we can use theories uh, from cultural psychiatry and medical anthropology to understand what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So the first chapter is really about how soldiers uh, in the United States, many of whom I treated and had served very honorably in the VA system, Uh Um, experience post-traumatic stress disorder and how the VA, the Veterans Administration System in the U.S., has increasingly loosened the definition of what constitutes post-traumatic stress disorder among veterans, which I think has important implications for how we think about service benefits, for example. Um, The second chapter is on the bioethical debates about psychiatrists and psychologists being involved in interrogations Mm -hmm. and what extent are they... um, are they framed from a particular cultural perspective? The third chapter was really about the provision of mental health services like Guantanamo based on looking at texts from like legal documents, motions, transcripts from the court that uh, Guantanamo military commissions have posted online. Mm -hmm. And also based on prior work that I've done interviewing former prosecutors working with the government Mm -hmm. and uh, 
defense attorneys who are representing detainees. Then chapters four, five, and six are much more about the construction of knowledge among psychiatrists and psychologists. So how do Arabs and Muslims get depicted in the war on terror in psychodynamic literature? Mm-hmm. How do we understand suicide bombing based on what psychiatrists and psychologists have to say? And how does it contrast with what Al-Qaeda had to say? And then chapter six is looking at what are the principles of de-radicalization programs worldwide? Back in the time that I was writing, it was still very secretive. Um, and it was very difficult to get that kind of information, but some governments had been posting what they do, and to what extent are these de-radicalization programs effective or not, what principles and cultural assumptions do they make, and really interrogating that. And, so the- and what, what have we learned from, from your first book, The Mental Health um, on the War on Terror? What, what, did we, what do you get out of that? I think that from the first book, I certainly learned a lot. I hope uh-huh. that my readers... I can imagine, yes. As well. Um, I think that one of the things that concerns me is that uh, in a, a long-standing critique, right from the philosopher Michel Foucault all the way until now, has been that psychiatrists can often serve state interests mm-hmm. um, and acting as agents of the state, and that we need to really make sure that we're clear as psychiatrists and psychologists that when certain kinds of issues arise, like with detainees anywhere, mm-hmm. or like with de-radicalization programs, that we really know who we're treating um, and in the sense that medical professionals are called to treat our enemies um, and that in forensic contexts where there isn't necessarily clinical need or a clinical uh, mission for the clinician, mm-hmm. that it might be more to explain what's going on, that we need to be clear that we don't necessarily serve state interests. I think the other thing that we also learn in the from the first book is that we see notions of violence and suicide bombing increasingly being racialized towards Arabs and Muslims, which discomforts me as a cultural psychiatrist. That's what we do, what, that, what's the, what, what the media supports as well. Yeah, I think we're seeing a certain degree of Islamophobia. And if the media does it, then I can think of perhaps commercial interests or the desire to sensationalize stories mm-hmm. to sell. But when we see this being reflected in peer-reviewed academic publications, and that concerns me because yeah. that's when there is now there are now assertions being made under the guise of science mm-hmm. that don't necessarily meet the kinds of standards that we would expect science to really enforce. Okay. So, for example, theoretical pieces that get cited over and over without necessarily strong clinical data right. or strong research yeah. data. And yet, because those ideas have been planted and are citable, that we see them take off in other ways and often like informed de-radicalization programs, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah that becomes a bit like uh, popular self-help uh, quotes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then your second book, The uh, the Taliban's Virtual Emirates, The Culture and Psychology of an Online Militant Community. They've right. been pretty successful there, right? They have been very successful. Where is this going? Where does this come from? Are, are we doing anything? We, as in, who don't like what IS is doing? Um, and, so- and the Taliban that? So the Taliban, the, the book, the reason why I wrote the book um, on the Taliban is because I was intrigued that the Taliban had this very active online media presence. And when I was submitting the manuscript, as you may know, there's often a lag time between completing a manuscript and then it being published. Mm-hmm. So the book came out in 2016, I think, and I think I submitted it in early 2015. Mm-hmm. And until then, the United States really hadn't considered an active counter-messaging online strategy. It has now because of the Islamic State's wild success mm-hmm. in, the, in attracting people through various platforms. Um, but until the time that I had written that book, it had not been the case at all, really. And so 
what intrigued me about the Taliban, and I, I should let you know also that in between my medical school and psychiatric residency training, I studied South Asian languages mm-hmm. uh, in graduate school, South Asian languages and civilizations. Um, so I have a master's degree where I learned several languages. And so I was intrigued at the way that the Taliban w- had this very active multilingual online presence. Mm-hmm. And yet in the beginning, when I was looking at some of the periodicals, more out of my interest from the first book, I noticed that what they're writing in languages can vary and at times is very contradictory. Okay. And so that really... Uh, interested me to say, well, how are they constructing a militant culture, but using language in different ways or using languages in different ways to reach different audiences for the same goals? Yeah. So that's the reason why I wrote that book. Okay. And, and so, so they are successful. IS is very successful with this as well. How, how, how do we deal with this? Is this, is, this, is this an age difference? I mean, these are generally young people with IS. Are they just more advanced? And is are our governments, and um, um, our governments, I mean, European, uh, maybe North American uh, governments are just too old? Are we lagging behind? What's, what's going on there? Well, I'm actually writing a book that should come out next year right. on the Islamic <laughs> State. So I'm going to let you know a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, I turned that book manuscript in this month. So I've been looking at the Islamic State's texts all, all across its various iterations since 2003 online. Uh-huh. And I can tell you that they have been, unfortunately, in my opinion, immensely successful for several reasons. First, from 2003 until about 2014, they had been able to post online in various forms without any real counter narrative. Mm. So the fact that they were able to reach large groups of people relatively in an unimpeded way. Uncensored. Uncensored, exactly, through various platforms in English and in Arabic. And then increasingly after 2013 in other languages like French, Russian, Turkish, Mm -hmm. um, Indonesian, uh, that we uh, are playing catch up to them. Um, I think now more and more with the Global Coalition, I don't know if you're familiar with the Global Coalition, but the U.S.-led coalition with 70 other partners, um, 68 countries, including Interpol, the Arab League, the European Union. uh, And so it's a worldwide initiative that uh, in 2015 really started to pick up its game in terms of countering online messaging. So, for example, there is the Salab Center in the United Arab Emirates uh, that's been working with the Global Coalition to make sure that uh, IS no longer can use Twitter Mm -hmm. uh, without any kind of pushback. And so, for example, just this past couple of weeks, I've been tracing um, the Islamic State's use of Twitter hashtags, and they started to promote Twitter hashtags in several periodicals, uh, one in English and one in French. Mm -hmm. And so I was going through and trying to reconstruct what their content has been with these hashtags. And... I personally am happy to say that at least in the past month or two months that the global coalition has been very successful at making sure that tweets and posts to those hashtags are now inundated by counter messaging as opposed to the Islamic State's message. I have concerns about, I mean, I, I can see that there are various legitimate arguments on both sides of the whole online censorship debate. Uh On the one hand, I think that we want to restrict the kind of messaging in the marketplace of ideas um, that the Islamic State is able to produce. At the same time, um, I've been seeing the Islamic State use more and more encrypted platforms Mm -hmm. like Telegram, for example, where 
instead of it being online, now it's password protected. Mm -hmm. So that concerns me because if we're very successful online with preventing their messaging, then it might drive these groups underground. And then we have to think about more creative ways of targeting them in that area. So it's a cat and mouse game in a way, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah. Is this? We've seen this throughout time, and I'm looking at time as well. We're in 34 minutes, but I really love the subject and and the way you talk about this as well. So if you have a couple more minutes, please. Um, it's we've seen this through time as well. We've seen it in Northern Ireland. We've seen it in Sri Lanka as well with the Tamil Tigers. Um, I mean, we've seen this in in uh, Vietnam or in Cambodia as well. Is, is this an age thing? Is this the thing? Samuel Huntington writes about this as well in, in The Clash of Civilizations, whereby he says, he makes a statement that if, if, if people reach a certain age, you know, they get older, um, all these young boys, they are eager right now within IS, and when they get older, they, they want to settle down and have kids as well. Is this going to take another 10, 20 years, and then it'll, will it die down? Or what do you, what is, what do you think? I I wish I had a I wish I had a, a crystal ball to tell you. That's I mean, good. I, <laughs> that's, I, that's I what I'm asking for. I think one of the things that I'm concerned about is that there's some really great researchers in the U.S. who have shown that it's not just an age thing in the way that we would typically think about, say, maybe the angry young 20-year-olds or uh-huh. adolescents yeah. who are revolting against the system. We're really looking at the creation of a social movement. I mean, the number of foreign fighters. Uh, within the Islamic State, I've seen estimates range from anywhere between 40,000 to 80,000, or uh, some estimates up to 100,000. Um, and so these foreign fighters are also encouraged to bring their families. They're encouraged to have children in Islamic State territories. And these, I can show you videos from the Islamic State that show children exposed to violence and the destruction of American soldiers or military material back from 2006. So this is almost a generation now of people that has been really exposed to this and that have normalized violence. I unfortunately um, can show you Islamic State videos released just this year alone before the U.S. was able, or the U.S. coalition was able to clamp down, where we see older men, men in their 70s, who are volunteering for suicide attacks. Uh, And we see... um, people in their 60s volunteering for suicide attacks, often with the justification that their own children uh, beat them to it and are in uh, paradise waiting for them and that uh, they want to join the glory and uh, sacrifices of their own children. So it challenges the idea that it's just young 20-year-olds. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And we also see women who are complicit uh, in this as well, where... Unfortunately, the Islamic State has enslaved a lot of women, particularly Yazid women uh, or minority women. But we see women who also are flocking to territories to be a part of this imaginary caliphate. Mm. And that it's not just men or it's not just men, but it's also women, it's older people. And we see cubs, what the the Islamic State calls cubs Mm. in reference to lions of men. People being trained as young as seven years old. So. Yeah, shocking. Um, I'm I'm very. Uh, I have to look at the time, and we're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna ask you my two last questions, um, sure. and hopefully, when your uh, your next book uh, is is being published, probably next year somewhere in 2018, um, I can get back in touch with you, and maybe you can come back here again sure. and tell us about that last book. That would be great. So, my one but last question is: um, from your experience being a uh, a cultural psychiatrist and the author of this of the books that you've written so far, can you give us th- three tips to become more culturally competent, please? Ah, good question. So, first, I would 
pivot away from competence because I think competence assumes a certain degree of mastery. Yeah. Instead, what I would recommend is that instead of seeing this as uh, kind of a skilling that clinicians need to enter the marketplace by way of competency, that we think more about just uh, several kinds of processes that we would benefit from. Uh-huh. First, allowing ourselves to experience strong emotional affect when we're dealing with people who present with legitimate differences than we do. Uh-huh. The second is not necessarily saying what comes to mind immediately, but trying to understand how our social positioning and how somebody else's social positioning may help to influence how they think or how we think about these particular issues. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third is to really allow oneself to experience genuine curiosity to try to find solutions towards a win-win situation. And I think if we think about culture as, again, shared values, orientations, yeah. practices, or beliefs that are transmitted among social groups, that there can't be a right or wrong answer. We just have to see what are those values, beliefs, or orientations that play at any given moment. Yeah, that's true. But that's, that seems to be so darn difficult when it comes to culture and cultural differences. You know, it's a, yeah. This is normal. No, it isn't normal. It is only, it's for you it's normal, but it's not for you normal. The word. Right. Yeah, there we go again. All right. Um, last question. How can people get in touch with you if they want to? So they can email me at my business address, which is doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R, at Neil K. Agarwal. That's N-E-I-L-K-A-G-G-A-R-W-A-L.com. Okay, Dr. That. That'll be in the show notes as well. Go into culturematters.com. Click on the podcast tab and you see all the podcasts. Neil Agarwal, it's been a pleasure um, having you on board here. Thank you so much for um, enlightening us with uh, with your view- viewpoints on what's going on in the Middle East, Taliban, but also in your practice and in the, the research realm of your profession as well. I'm pretty Thank sure and hopefully we'll bump into each other in the future. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, thanks, Neil, for having you on the show. It's been a great pleasure. I really like this topic as well. Although possibly controversial, it's about culture, and that's what I'm trying to do here with Culture Matters Podcast. If you want to know what we look like, then you can follow the video cast of this podcast as well by going to culturematters.com slash YouTube. And while you're there on your computer watching, why don't you go to iTunes and leave a review as well. Of course, a five-star review would be the best and the finest because the more reviews, the more stars, the better it is for this podcast and the more people can enjoy listening to this as well. If you would know a good guest that would make a good guest for this podcast, why don't you drop me a line at chris.smith at culturematters.com and I will get back to you and can see how we can make this work. Remember, culture matters. And finally, this episode was produced by Janice Sheila and music was by Ben Sound. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks time where we'll be talking about sports and rivalry. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.